the Lord's saints here. We are going to go ahead and get back into Romans chapter 14 today, and we're going to um, finish off that back half that we started last week. So we're going to be reading from uh, verse 13 to 23, so if you would go ahead and open up your Bibles with me, and let's go ahead and start by reading the Word of God together. This is Romans 14. I didn't get my slide updated from last week. I updated it this morning, so it must have been open already. All right, yeah, so it is Romans 14, and we're going to start reading in uh, in, uh, verse 13. Paul writes this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. As we start today, I just want to um, start with a simple illustration to hopefully kind of help us frame this argument there. I'm not sure if any of you have anybody in your life with allergies, but I remember my oldest daughter having uh, some mysterious illnesses for a while when she was four or five years old and it took a long time to figure out what was going on, what was causing it, why she kept waking up in the middle of the night and being as sick as she was. We, we could never figure out what it was, and it took months. We went to doctors, multiple different types of doctors, different places, and finally, at the end of all of that, we discovered that the sickness she was popping up with every single night was a result of an allergy to dairy. You know, she'd eat things, we wouldn't think twice about it, she'd be fine all day and wake up sick in the middle of the night. And so something we were eating was causing her physical pain and physical distress and doing damage to her body without us even realizing it. And once we knew, once we knew that this was happening, we made changes to our lives, right? We didn't continue to to feed her things. We knew she she used to drink chocolate milk, she loved chocolate milk, but at that point it was, sorry, we, we can't do chocolate milk anymore. And our family had to make changes. They had to make changes in how we cooked things and places we ate. And we had to make decisions for the betterment of our daughter to make sure that her physical body was taken care of. And I think in some ways, that picture of what we had to do as a family to make sure we were taking care of her is uh, similar to spiritually what we're dealing with here in this back half of Romans 14. In this back half of Romans 14 that we're dropping into today, um, Essentially right now we're in part two of what is a three-part series that's dealing with our liberty as Christians in Christ, dealing with legalism, 
And it's ultimately dealing with how we are living together as believers in such a way that we're not raising up stumbling blocks that are hurting each other in, as we're walking in our faith and pursuing God. Last week we uh, walked through verses 1 to 13 and we saw as we went through this text the, the manner in which we're supposed to treat one another. Paul tells us that brothers who are strong in their faith, they should be welcoming those or to those who are weaker in their faith. And they don't do this to just sit there and have them over and get them into a conversation or debate. No, they shouldn't be eager to quarrel over opinions. They should be welcoming and show that brotherly love as they strive to live in harmony with one another like Paul tells us to back in Romans 12. And both the stronger brother and the weaker brother, Paul tells us uh, in verses 1-13, to should not be quick to pass unrighteous judgment upon one another because they're both in Christ. They both have the same Savior, the, the same King, the same blood that covers them and unites them in one face. And they'll both stand before the judgment seat of God, Paul tells us, but not in their own righteousness, under the righteousness of Christ as blood-bought saints, brothers in the faith. Therefore, let's bow the knee to Christ. Paul tells us, let's live together with one another, like he tells us in chapter 12, in harmony in harmony with one another. Not picking petty fights or creating quarrels or creating divisions where there doesn't need to be any, but truly coming together as brothers and sisters in the faith, building one another up to see them grow in their knowledge of the Lord. We find ourselves now here in this letter to the Romans in this continued pursuit of the life that is a living sacrifice that Paul talked about at the beginning of Romans 12. This is us considering now how do we relate to one another? Not only how we just live together, but how do we strive to build each other up in our faith and how do we not cause each other to stumble? Last week we said this was a task that we were undertaking. This was something we were understanding and trying to apply so that we, we do that thing in, um, in verse 13 that we never or that we decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. These stumbling blocks in the early church in Rome were arising because you have these different groups of people that were coming together with different backgrounds. And they're coming together for a new purpose because of the Lord that they serve. So we have those who are coming from these Jewish backgrounds who are coming to worship Jesus and they see Him as this promised Messiah from the line of David. And with them, they're bringing with them centuries of customs and traditions and laws that now they have to look at and they have to interpret in light of Jesus being this promised Messiah. Compare this with the Roman Gentiles who these Jews now find themselves worshiping with. This new group of believers have no connection to these traditions. They have no connection to these uh, laws that they're coming. They see these things now as they've come to faith already understanding that all the law and the prophets are pointing them to Jesus, the Messiah. And not only now do you have these two groups of people who are coming to faith in Christ from much different starting points with different frames of reference, but you have these two groups of people coming together as one church trying to understand how it is they should worship, trying to understand how it is they should live their lives in the way that brings the most glory and honor and praise to God. 
So what do we see in the church of Rome? We see the Jews, some of the Jews, continue to observe these feasts and these dietary, these feast days and these dietary laws. And you have some Gentiles who are saying those things have passed away. And then you even have other Gentiles who are saying, you know what, maybe you're right. Maybe we should keep some of those things. Maybe they're not a bad thing, right? So you have these people in this church in Rome coming together, asking these questions. Now Paul gives the church in Rome some specific instructions. And he gives encouragement for the Christians here to embrace the liberty that they have in Christ, but not to abuse it. And not only to abuse that liberty in Christ, but not to use that liberty which sees Christians free from ceremonial laws, laws that were meant to mark Israel as different and set apart from their pagan neighbors. But no, Paul is telling us to use that liberty and to be aware of it so that we don't hinder one another from worshiping the Lord. This group of people who are now worshiping together as what is supposed to be one new community with Jesus as their king, as they seek to live out this new faith of theirs, this faith that was bought and paid for by Jesus dying on the cross and raising again as payment for their sin. See, they're seeking on how to live this faith knowing that their lives should be looking different, knowing that their lives will not be the same that they were before they came to Christ. And now, as they examine these rituals and these customs and these traditions, and they examine it in light of their liberty that they know they have in Christ, that all of these Old Testament um, laws, ceremonial laws and dietary restrictions were pointing us ultimately to Jesus, now they seek to not just be conformed to a new set of traditions and rules, not to put themselves back under a law, but no, they're seeking on how to understand these things in order to be conformed more and more to Jesus, to be more and more like Him in every way. Jesus, He is their King. He is the King of these people in this church of Rome. He is our King as Christians here today who come together to worship Him. And the call of their lives now, just as it is the call of our lives now, is to be a living sacrifice. And Paul is telling us now in chapter 14 that the way in which we live this out, the way in which we seek to be this living sacrifice and living in peace and harmony with one another is going to be much more important than whether or not each of us agree on every single issue that is of secondary importance. That's why we're working through this back half of chapter 14. That's why we're seeking this. The reason why we're here, I think we see in verse 17 where Paul says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As we seek to see this and understand this today, I think it's going to help us to do what I said the overall thing we're trying to do in, verse four, in chapter 14 is, which is we, we want to decide to never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul brings us to this conclusion in this letter, not from his own thoughts on the matter. He doesn't just sit there and tell us, this is a new thing I'm telling you. No, he's telling us that this understanding of how Christians should view the dietary laws, he understands and he believes because he sees that this is exactly what Jesus taught. Look at verse 14 with me again. Paul writes, 
I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Why does Paul say this? I think we see Jesus talk about this in in the Gospels. Flip back uh, to Mark chapter 7 with me really quick. Mark chapter 7, and we're going to read verses 14 to 19 together. In this uh, passage in Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees gathered around Jesus, and these Pharisees saw that Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands according to the traditions of the Jewish elders as they were about to eat. And this is Jesus' response in verse 14. And He called the people to Him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into Him can defile Him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he, entered, when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile them, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. As Jesus was being put to the test by the Pharisees here in Mark, He explains plainly to the disciples that the food laws that were in place we're not there to keep people from being defiled just by eating the food. It wasn't the food doing something to dirty their, their souls or their bodies. Now the laws regarding what you should and shouldn't eat were not about keeping the food from making people sinful. The dietary laws laid out in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 served a different purpose. And sin is not caused by the food, and sin is not caused by the food making you sinful. This is a spiritual truth, of course. right? We do know that there are physical repercussions for eating anything we want, and we need to make good, wise choices on this. But spiritually speaking, the heart is already sinful. The heart is already showing it's defiled. And the food that you're eating, it doesn't change that for the better or for the worse of your soul. In Acts chapter 10, we get a similar lesson as a Gentile named Cornelius had a vision where he was told to send his servants uh, to find Peter and to bring him to his house. Flip back over to Acts chapter 10 with me really quick. Going back towards Romans a little bit. So after this angel of God appears to this uh, Gentile Cornelius telling him to send his servants to go get Peter, Peter has a vision In verse 9, the next day, as they were on the journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance 
and saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now Peter sees this vision now as God is sending servants of the Gentile Cornelius to come and bring him to Cornelius' house. And here in this vision Peter has, we see liberty from dietary laws. We see in this liberty that there will be free fellowship between Gentile believers that God is seeking to bring into His kingdom. And this is why Paul now writes to the Roman church telling them that he, he who in Philippians 3 called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, one who had plenty of boasting in his own righteousness and in his own law-keeping, this Paul now is persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. And that is quite the turn for Paul, right? But in Christ, Paul sees how all the law and prophets point to Jesus as the Messiah, and now he stands there convinced by Jesus himself that these dietary restrictions should no longer be something that separates Jews and Gentiles. And also that Christians will find no added righteousness in keeping these laws that were given to the nation of Israel. Unless, as Paul says at the end of verse 14, you continue to believe these things are unclean to be eaten. It feels strange for Paul to say this here. It sounds strange for me when I read it too, right? Because Paul, how are you telling me, leading up to this point, that something is no longer unclean and it can be eaten? How is it no longer unlawful for us to partake of this thing? But then you would sit there and say, only if they continue to believe it's unclean. Why would someone's belief on the matter make it continue to be unclean in that way? I think this is a great question that I think we need to hold on to for just a minute or two or ten as we get to the end of the chapter here and we relate this back to verse uh, 33. So hold on to that question for, for a few minutes and let's, let's revisit that, okay? But right now let's remember that Paul has made this case that in Christ nothing is unclean and now the important part for us as believers is how we take this information, how we take this knowledge and this liberty that we have in Christ and how we treat one another with it. Look at verse 15 with me. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The verse and the implications with it can be often difficult to understand and difficult to apply. Because when we want to understand it rightly, it, it feels like we're giving somebody power over us that they shouldn't have. And when we understand it wrongly, we end up becoming a tyrant over brothers and sisters who have liberty in items um, that we may feel more uh, stronger convictions about. I think that's often why we see um, Eaton being swapped out for something more of a modern controversy, such as how should we as Christians partake of alcoholic drinks? 
If we think of what Paul is saying in those terms, I think the picture that's being painted for us here can be understood a little bit easier. For example, imagine you have a brother who's been saved and who used to be controlled by their desire for alcohol and used to be controlled by their sin of drunkenness. And this brother has been saved from this desire of his flesh and had to leave it behind when they came to Christ. Are you going to show that brother you love them when you invite them over to your house with some others maybe from the church and bring everybody down to that bar in your basement? Is that showing this person that you're walking with them in faith and seeing them built up and seeing them uh, to continue to press on? in the faith of the Lord and avoiding sin? See, there may be nothing wrong with partaking at that particular moment, but in the presence of that brother, the one that you know who has been saved from this sin of drunkenness and has been delivered from that sin, this is a place where we're abusing our liberty and we're putting sin in front of a brother who is fleeing from that and striving to be more like Christ. And in their life, they have to leave that behind. And they may not have the liberty that you have of conscience in that way. When we do that, we, this is why Paul tells us in verse 16 right here that do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. In that situation, you're going to take something that could be good and can be enjoyed uh, freely and take it and make it uh, something that could potentially put a yoke back onto the neck of a brother who has been freed from that sin. Disregarding your brother's grief over moments like this causes us to take something good, something that can be enjoyed to the glory of God, and it turns it into something that is a stumbling block. And it creates a situation where some may try to raise up a law, and some may cause cause some to bring judgment where there is no need for any. So be careful, Christians, taking things that are opinions are taking things that may be helpful for us in our walk to stay faithful, or even on the flip side of that, how we may enjoy liberty in Christ to partake in good things that God created. Be careful how we approach these things. Because the kingdom of God is not of this world. It is not experienced through our worldly pleasures. Like Paul says in verse 17, where he writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul tells us it's okay in our liberty in Christ to eat that meat that was sacrificed to an idol. But it's also the same reason why you can look at that meat and remember your former life where the sacrifice to an idol had some sort of meaning to you and say, I'm going to abstain and I'm not going to partake. Because it's Not the food or drink that's the issue. The issue is the heart. The issue is what is it that our heart is chasing after in this moment? Are we looking to those external things, maybe boasting in our liberty that Christ has freed us from the law, only to fall into lawlessness because of our disregard for the price that Christ paid in going to the cross to pay our debt of sin? Are we taking the flip side... And are we looking to external things and we're still pursuing adherence to to laws or even raising up new laws or customs or traditions to try to protect ourselves from falling back into sin? 
because we can't see that it was Christ who justified it from our justified us from our sins. So we look to these other things that we raise up to make us feel good about ourselves, to make us feel like we're on track. Or now in Christ, can we come and enjoy and display the righteousness that He poured out over us? And we do this by living to be at peace with one another. Living by the power of the Holy Spirit, remembering that the great joy that we have is because of what Jesus has done. And we can eat freely to His glory, Paul says, or we can sit there and we can step back and realize that God has saved us from something that was sinful about um, that this is, may potentially have some connection to. And it may be good for us to stop and not partake. Because the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. And this is why Paul reiterates ideas now in verses 20 and 21 that are very similar to what we read back in 13, 14, and 15. Let's read verses 20 and 21 really quick. Paul writes, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. These ideas are very similar to what we started with in verses 13 and 14 and 15, only now instead of talking uh, persuasively to try to win people over to help them better understand, Paul is stating this directly for us. He's telling us that as mature disciples of Jesus, that as people who want to be living sacrifices, that it's good for us not to quarrel over things that are opinions. And even more so, it's good for us to set aside our own convictions in certain circumstances when it comes to questions like these about food and drink if it means that we're going to help build our brother up in faith. Paul tells us in verse 20 and 21, who has already expressed what... Um, Paul, he's already expressed to us all throughout the book of Romans, what he's been persuaded of in regards to these matters. Right? Paul has a very clear conviction on this issue that there is no sin to eating the food served at the barbecue hosted by his Gentile brothers. He's free to eat those pork ribs. He's free to go over and enjoy the bacon. But he says still that if his liberty is causing his brother to stumble in their faith, that it would be wrong for him to exercise that liberty. Because at the end of the day, it is for the good of the brother that he is seeking and not merely an affirmation of his own strong faith. Paul tells us that right thing, or thinking rightly on this issue is definitely of consequence. We should strive to understand this and believe this. But he reminds us that while it's good to have this kind of understanding and enjoy the liberty of being free from the ceremonial and dietary laws, we should not exercise this faith in a way that is going to do damage to the faith of our brother. Because if we boast in our freedom in Christ and we just live out or live out however we want, it's going to cause us to be argumentative over our own opinions on these matters. It's going to cause us to go to our brothers and say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you see this the way I see it? Or 
Ultimately, it's going to bring condemnation upon ourselves because the judgment that we're using to come to this conviction is done not out of an expression of the true liberty that we have in Christ. It's not done out of an expression of gratitude for Christ fulfilling the law and setting us free from sin, but it is done to boast of our own strong faith and the freedom that we think we have, which in this situation, if that's us and we're walking through in that manner, it probably isn't freedom in Christ. And it's more likely us living according to our flesh and trying to paper it over with Christian language. The weaker brother in faith is not left out here by Paul at the end of chapter 14. We see Paul address him in verse 23. And Paul says, But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I asked us a few minutes ago to hold on to that question back uh, from uh, verse 16. And this is why I want us to hold on to it, because it feels like these two verses here uh, have similar ideas and similar things we need to grasp right here. That question I said that I struggled with and I wrestled with is, Paul, if you're telling me something is no longer unclean and it's no longer uh, unlawful for us to partake of, why would someone's belief on the matter make it continue to be unclean like you're telling me here? See, if we say our convictions on these issues are opinions and not issues of sin, but our opinions on matters of what we eat and what we drink are that we should still follow dietary laws and restrictions. So I'm sitting here and I'm telling you, no, we need to follow these things. We need to do this. We need to eat clean. And then I'm turning around and I'm eating all the things I'm telling you we shouldn't be. We're engaging in something that we say is sin. We're looking at something and we're telling everybody, don't do that thing. This is sinful. It's going to do damage to your soul. But now, through our partaking at that point, we say it's okay to engage in sin. We end up, at this point, looking like massive hypocrites. And we're standing before the world, engaging in behavior that just a minute ago we said was sinful, And this does massive damage to our witness. Because if this truly is sin and you feel a conviction that I must not partake, now you're looking at the world and saying, it's okay to partake in sin. I think this is why we have to remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10.31 where he tells us, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you eat, if your conviction is Christ has died and has set us free from these dietary laws and these customs, then do it to the glory of God. And if you're there and you're struggling with this change, you don't quite understand, and you feel like you need to continue to eat according to these dietary laws, then eat your food Whatever you choose, do it to the glory of God. We see an example of this, of what this looks like in Scripture. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter 
comes to Antioch, where Paul is. And Paul records this story of this interaction between him and Peter, um, starting in verse 11. He says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from, or before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when those men came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I think this is the exact situation Paul's dealing with in verse 23. You have Peter here, who Paul confronts. And he sits there and he says, Peter, you understand the liberty that we have in Christ. I just saw you eating with those Gentiles. You're at the same table, eating the same food. You're with your Gentile brothers and sisters, and you're expressing that liberty, even though you've been a Jew your entire life. But what do you do when the circumcision party arrives? When these men who come that sit there and say, like, no, you must keep these dietary laws, Peter, you pull back. You abandon your Gentile brothers and you leave them, and all of a sudden you're pointing fingers and casting judgment and casting aspersions upon them. Peter stopped eating freely the way he was prior to that. Peter was not living consistently with the convictions that he had been given. He was not eating with the Gentiles for the glory of God. And we know that because as soon as some others who came who would look down on his eating, he stopped. And he started to act, like Paul said, hypocritically. He didn't stop because it was going to affect the conscience of the brothers who were coming to visit him. He stopped because he wanted to look good in front of men. And that story takes us back to the heart of the issue. How is it that if we partake of something that the Bible doesn't say is sin, but we say is sin, we condemn ourselves? Because we sat there and we made the statement that we're okay engaging in sinful behavior. It's a statement of our heart. It's a statement of what we believe about God and being in obedience to Him and living as that living sacrifice. So like Peter and Antioch, if we do this, we don't live with a conviction on these issues. We don't... Um, we don't live with a conviction on these issues that ultimately are not issues of sin and salvation, that show in all things we live to glorify God. No, we don't live with a heart to see our brother built up and to engage in fellowship that will um, edify them and encourage them in their faith in the Lord. But it is all done in this situation with an eye on making ourselves to, be appear, to appear righteous which ultimately forsakes the righteousness that we have in Christ. So what do we do with this text for us today? What do we take from here and apply to our lives as we walk out these doors? I think we have a few points that we'll kind of run through really quick. I think the first thing we have to remember as we look at this text, examine it, and try to um, put it into practice in our lives, is we have to remember that Jesus is the standard 
that we live our lives by. He is the one. He is the one we look to. He is the one we follow. We don't have this liberty for the sake of just having liberty, right? We don't have a freedom to just go and do whatever we want because we know that at some point we'll chase that rabbit and find ourselves in lawlessness. We'll find ourselves in sin. No, we have liberty in Christ from being slaves to our sin. This means we don't embrace the law of God to make us righteous in our own work, but that we embrace Christ in those areas that we're now free to partake in, we're free to make decisions in, we're free to think through and try to make decisions that ultimately we think will glorify God the best way. We're free to do that because ultimately we do that to the glory of God. In Christ, we're not free in the sense that we can just now, uh, we can now live however we choose. Because if Jesus is our Savior, it's Him and His example that we're living to follow. If we're not being conformed to Christ in the way we live with one another in the church, we will ultimately raise up those stumbling blocks for one another. We're going to do damage to one another's faith as we end up worried more about how everyone else thinks about these secondary issues. Rather than enjoying that liberty you have in Christ to come and worship together with people who think differently on all hosts of issues, and I know they're there. I know everybody doesn't agree with me on every single thing in this room, right? Think about it. Music. Education. A big one that's coming up, right, that, that we deal with inside the church. You've got October 31st, Halloween, Reformation Day. How do we interact with the culture? How do we celebrate these days? How do we make these decisions in our lives that are going to glorify God? There's a way for us to do that where we'll disagree and we can still encourage one another in the faith. And there's a way that we can do that where we embrace our liberty or we embrace uh, legalism and we become judgmental and we end up doing damage to one another rather than building one another up. Does this mean we gloss over Sin in each other's lives? No. Like Paul said earlier in Romans, by no means. But this means we don't live as a slave to our own opinions. These things in which we all get to make our own decisions on. But if there's sin in the food and drink we consume, there may come a time to say something to somebody about that. But don't be quick to pronounce wrong judgments. And don't try to force others to conform what you think is the best way. Like I said, with music, music uh, is not inherently sinful. Music is a great thing. It's something that we worship the Lord through. And all of us in this room, I'm sure, have very different tastes as to what is pleasing to listen to on the radio, right? And there may be things we have to sit there and say, hey, you know that stuff you listen to? You might want to rethink that a little bit. There's some stuff in there that's going to lead your heart astray. That's stuff that doesn't bring glory to God. And we probably have to listen to that. But if it's just... You know, I, I don't know how I feel about Christian rap. That's a little bridge too far for me. That's okay. You can listen to the Gaithers. Your brother can listen to... I can't even think of a Christian rap right now. <laughs> Lecrae, Triple E, whatever. And that's okay. And you can still be brothers. You may sit silently when you're riding down the, sh- the road in the car together because you may not want to listen to what the other has. You may not be edified and built up by the the particular style of music they have, but that's okay. These differences in taste, if they're not leading us to sin, are okay for us to have one another. 
and remembering that it's Christ that is our example. It's Christ that calls us to live in harmony with one another. It's Christ that laid down His life for us should cause us to come to our brother, not in pride, not in arrogance, not trying to create division, but willing to deny ourselves. I think this leads into the second point. Weaker brothers need to avoid tyranny over stronger brothers. And stronger brothers need to avoid the boasting boasting and trying to straighten everyone out to better understand what, the way they do. When we find our place in the weaker brother on issues like these, we're going to need to examine ourselves and our own hearts. And we're going to have to judge our brothers and our sisters rightly, or we're going to run the risk of putting people we love and want to see built up in their faith. We're going to put them at risk of living under tyranny of us. When we find ourselves in this situation where we are the stronger brother in faith, we're going to have to walk cautiously to make sure that we are not looking down upon our weaker brother who may not share the same strength of conviction on a particular issue that you do. And whether we find ourselves in either place, we have to remember that the goal we have is to see two people who've been saved by the same Lord living in harmony with one another for the glory of the Gospel. Because as we come together and we join in worship and we commit our lives to the sake of the kingdom, we get to go back out and we get to reach the lost and we get to embrace that mission He's given us. We get to embrace uh, that subtitle of what Romans is, Christ to all nations. This is a, a gospel issue. This is a missions issue. If we're sitting here squabbling and fighting over every single little uh, nook and cranny of each other's lives, we're failing to go and reach the nations. We want to live in harmony with one another for the glory of the gospel. And when we come to these situations and we look to elevate ourselves and our opinions on matters that are ultimately not causing us to sin, it's just going to drive us to judge one another. And that's going to potentially lead us in sin to view each other in uh, harmful ways. And when you travel that path, and when you're looking at your brother and your sister in faith with that kind of suspicion, we're going to isolate ourselves from one another. Because ultimately, we just sit there and say, they just don't get it like we do. And this is going to break down relationships. And as we place an unnecessary burden on people to conform to us as we make our choices, or we start to ridicule people for being too legalistic and for creating laws to avoid things where there doesn't need to be laws. And it's so easy to do. It's so easy to do this in matters of food and drink, in our hobbies, in the music, in the ways we parent, in the way we educate. It's so easy to do these things. It's so easy to build these barriers and to build these walls and to tear each other down rather than edifying the faith. But if we're going to deal with sin in our lives so that we're conformed to Christ, we should strive to edify one another in these matters that are opinions or day-to-day choices, not to try to put people under our own law and not to just ridicule and condemn people because they're weak and I get it better than they do. This passage that we've walked through is Paul pleading with the church in Rome to live in harmony with one another. This is critical because 
Romans 12.1, he tells us, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We don't want to be tyrants in the lives of, of our brothers because they're not seeing something that isn't sin the same way that we do. I think this brings us to the final point for us to consider. I think that's found... Um, we're going to see that in Matthew 16, 24. But that final point is maturity in Christ is demonstrated by us denying ourselves. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus tells his disciples this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, we don't want to put others under a law where there is none. We have to remember that as Christians, our lives are a submission to Christ. And as such, we have to remember it's not a bad thing to tell ourselves no. It's not bad for us to deny ourselves, to lay down our own desires, and to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, am I following Christ in how I live? Am I being like Him today? And if we find ourselves in the place of a stronger brother in a particular issue, we have to see that sometimes it's okay to deny ourselves, even though we have that liberty won for us in Christ. It's okay to deny ourselves in these situations in order to help build up our brother. Again, not in such a way that the weaker brother becomes a tyrant, but in such a way that through denying yourself and saying, I know there's freedom in Christ to eat and drink, but Christ is more valuable to me than if I ever eat or drink again. I opened with that story of my daughter and her dairy allergy and the changes we had to make to our family because of that. There are a lot of things I like to eat with dairy in them, right? There's a lot of desserts, a lot of dishes. We can't make those anymore. But I love my daughter. And I'm not going to sit there and eat and make this wonderful dinner and have her sit there at the table and watch me eat it and just say, go make something else. That's not showing her love. That's not denying myself. That's not me living in liberty. And that's me elevating myself and telling my daughter or my brother or my sister to just deal with it. The sign of true Christian maturity... It is a mark that we should all be striving for in our lives. Denying ourselves. Leaving, the beside, or leaving aside the things that we want to chase after Christ, to follow Christ. And when we're dealing with our brother and sister, to find those opportunities to deny ourselves again, to see them built up in faith. Because I think this is where we do find true liberty in Christ. Not under the thumb of a brother and sister who's telling us, uh, what we're doing is wrong. No, that's not what I mean. No, we find true liberty in Christ because it doesn't matter if we eat or drink. Our flesh and our human mind is not what is in control of how we act. We have freedom from our flesh in Christ to say no to it. So when I'm having the brother over who is saved from his drunkenness, I can look at my flesh and I can say, I know I'm not going to drink, uh, have that drink or cup of wine or glass of wine with dinner tonight. 
And when you have true liberty in Christ, your strong faith will be demonstrated in that way. And as you demonstrate the self-control and you avoid something you know will cause your brother to stumble, you're demonstrating that your flesh is not your master anymore. You're demonstrating that your flesh is submitted to Christ. Because you're not sitting in that situation thinking about all the ways in which you've been wronged. You're there in that situation thinking about how you can build up your brother and how right now you're glorifying your Lord. When we're inside the church with our brothers and sisters in Christ, it's so easy to raise up stumbling blocks to each other's faith over things that are our own opinions. This becomes deadly to us because we end up living proud, wanting others to conform to us, instead of encouraging each other to be conformed to Christ. This passage here today is to remind us that the kingdom of God is not found in just the things that we eat or drink. It's not found in our own feeble efforts to keep God's law, but it is truly found in Christ, who gives us righteousness, that while we were still yet sinners, He died for us and now has justified us. The kingdom is not a matter of eating or drinking. It's a matter of submitting to Christ and Him being your King. And that's going to play itself out in how we treat one another. That's going to play itself out in decisions we make in our lives. Things we choose to partake in. Things and times we choose to abstain. So ultimately, let us pursue His kingdom first today. His kingdom is not one we seek because of worldly pleasures, but His kingdom is one we seek through the Holy Spirit, through His righteousness, one that we enjoy, His joy and His peace. Because He is our King. Let's pray. Father, this passage of Scripture, Lord, has so much for us to chew on. has so much for us to consider. There's so many areas that us in our own human minds and our own flesh could easily run off the rails in and be a hindrance to one another, Father. So as we come to bend the knee to you this morning, as we come to ask you to help bring understanding to your word. I just pray, Lord, that you give us hearts that demonstrate love and compassion. Lord, that would put Christ on display in how we treat one another. Father, because I think that's what you're getting at in this passage. It's not about us just getting our way or getting the things we want or having other people agree with us on our opinions, but it is about the attitude of our heart and, Lord, how we treat one another because of that. So, Father, just... Deal with us today in that, however that needs to happen. It may be different in each one of us, Lord, but deal with us today in that. Let your Holy Spirit dwell richly in us so that ultimately, Father, we, um, we do deny ourselves and we chase after your Son, Jesus, who has bled and died and saved us, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.